welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I am Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. We're back after our break with more information, interviews, and discussion around universal basic income. So we thought we'd kick things off for 2018 with a Q&A episode. We reached out to you asking for questions about basic income, and you responded with a ton of really good questions. So we will tackle a few of those right here. Yeah, sadly, we won't have time to go over everything, at least in this episode, although this is just more fuel for us to do more Q&A episodes in the future or look for guests who can speak to these different topics. So to start off with, we're going to cover a topic that I find comes up more and more in discussions these days. I think as basic income has become seen as more legitimate policy, people are starting to get a little more specific about concerns that they have. And this one relates to inflation. So we had two people ask questions on this topic. Tom asked, what are the potential downsides to UBI and how do advocates plan to account for them? For example, if you give $100 to everybody, but if this triggers inflation, then the $100 could lose enough value to be barely worth it. And Quentin asked, here's one that I've never really seen addressed, but always seems to linger in the subtext. If you give everyone a base and equal amount of cash every month, how does that affect the value and pricing of basic needs that it is meant to address? So this is actually one area where there is some research uh, that has come out fairly recently. There is a study run by the Mexican government on some villages where they provided either cash assistance or food assistance. And there was some follow-up research out of Northwestern. What they found is that in areas where there isn't a whole lot of um, uh, of a market, there isn't a very developed market, and it's not easy to go one town over and use their grocery stores and other other commerce, you do see a little bit of inflation in the case where cash assistance as opposed to food assistance is received. But if there is a market, if there are multiple places where you can go, Uh, for your basic needs, then there is no real inflation effect. We've also seen a study out of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. That study just in general, does government spending affect inflation? And the general finding is no, it it does not. They found no effect. They even showed a non-significant decrease in inflation. So there seems to be no real relationship between government spending and inflation that we can see. There was a really good point that was made about this just a couple months back by Matt Brunig. He was responding to an, uh, an article that had been written that expressed concerns that if we were to enact basic income, it would cause inflation that, that effectively ate up the amount of the value of the basic income and, and left people off no better off than, than they had been. And he pointed out that if we believe that providing people with a base level of income will be entirely eaten up through inflationary effects, that's effectively an argument that we shouldn't be fighting for broad-based prosperity programs generally, because it's saying that if everyone has more money, that money will always be used up. And so why are we fighting for a higher minimum wage? Why are we fighting for, for other benefits that don't just go to a few, but go to many people, because the, the same thing would happen. Um, and, and if you put it in that context, I think it makes a little bit more intuitive sense why this is not as big a risk as many people seem to think it is. It's if people are doing better, they're doing better, and there may be some differences in, in how the market responds, but it's not a situation where all or the vast majority of those gains will just simply disappear. 
I think it's also worth noting that what we've been talking about here is, is a basic income paid for by redistribution. Money already in the system. Right, where we are in some form or another going to be funding the basic income from sources of, of higher wealth um, and uh, redistributing them to people who have less money. Um, all the analysis we pointed out, effectively we're talking about that sort of government financing. Another option that comes up from time to time for funding basic income is uh, quote-unquote helicopter money, where you actually would have the government printing new money to provide funding for it. We would, in fact, expect inflation to occur in a situation like that. Generally, when governments are printing money, that tends to, there's a much more direct line between inflation and the issuing of that money. That said, completely separate from the basic income conversation, we actually have serious economists and policy people considering helicopter money because inflation is actually lower than we want it to be in different countries around the world, that you want a certain level of inflation in order to get good economic growth. And so while completely funding a basic income through helicopter money would probably not work out great, if we were to say helicopter money could fund part of that or provide people with a slightly larger amount um, in order to bring up inflation to, to a level that we were actually more happy with, that could make the financing question a little bit easier than it might be otherwise. Yeah, one model perhaps that we could see is that there's a base level of basic income that comes through redistributed money and that as more inflation is needed for the health of the economy, that could also be added into the basic income. Yeah, if you're taking a, a layered approach, then it gives you a lot of flexibility for, for how you can organize things. All right, so we also got a great question from Nurette. Excuse me if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. Um, this is about worker bargaining power. I haven't seen too much on how UBI would return bargaining power to the workers. This was a role filled traditionally by unions, but these have been gutted by the neoliberal slash libertarian scheme. So we've mentioned this on previous episodes, the idea that if we were to provide everyone with a basic income, it, it, would, it could potentially provide a valuable tool to organize labor. When you're looking at really what unions and organized laborers aim to do, it's, it's about power. It's about saying that the way the system is generally constructed, it puts the significant majority of power with the corporation mm -hmm. and effectively allows them to then abuse in various forms the people who, who work for it. And organized labor counters that by combining the power of the workers and then being able to, to reach a level that, that counters what the corporation has. And so if, if you're thinking about uh, unions and organized labor from that perspective, I think that there is a strong argument that basic income does in fact uh, could potentially make a big difference here because it's providing additional power, not just collectively, but at the individual level. You're saying that rather than the corporation controlling 100% of the income people are receiving, it's only going to control a portion of the income people receive. And that a portion of that will be outside the corporation's control. And that means that at the individual level or collectively, 
people are better able to, they have more leverage and they can better negotiate and, and push for improved working conditions and so on. I think that's an important point that a basic income would provide funding outside of what's being given by the employer because so many people are literally living paycheck to paycheck and if you know they, they miss one paycheck they could you know not make their rent you know potentially face eviction not be able to feed themselves or pay their heating bill uh, a basic income you know hopefully provides your basic needs and that also leads into the idea of a strike fund this is something that unions would would fund for their employees who are going on strike it would be a portion of your paycheck or, or a multiplier of your union dues and this is a, essentially the same basic idea that you would be able to not go to work, not receive your paycheck, but still uh, be able to feed yourself, live your life, and that you would have that leverage so that the employer knows that you're not desperate to come back. Our third question is related to whether there might be predatory lending practices that would emerge if we enacted basic income. We had Keith ask, considering the reality of predatory lending, would we be likely to see at least a few people spending their basic income on debt payments? If UBI is meant to eliminate poverty, would there be a need for a legal framework against borrowing against one's basic income? And David asked, how do you stop exploitative institutions from structuring debt schemes that suck it all away? So I think this is actually a really important question that hasn't received very much attention yet in the basic income space. When we talk about basic income policy, we generally think about what would it mean to actually provide people with money and, and where would that money come from. We haven't gotten often to the step beyond that, which is if people are receiving that money, what are the additional policies and additional regulations that we might need in order to ensure the effect of the policy is what we actually intended. And I think predatory lending is really a key area that is probably focal point number one on that. Yeah, yeah, and, and honestly, it's a tough question. I feel like there will need to be regulation around this. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know if you prohibit entirely all uh, borrowing against your your basic income, uh, because you can imagine scenarios where where people would need a little bit of cash up front, and they do have the basic income coming. Uh, that is one reason that I think we would want a basic income once it's set up to come fairly regularly. So hopefully that that need to borrow against it would be reduced. But yeah, this this does highlight the importance of pilots. We had one person ask, can't we just skip all the pilots and get to the basic income? And uh, this is one area where we can use more data and hopefully we will get some out of the ones that are going on right now. Yeah, and I think there's, in, in this area in particular, there's some interesting tension because one of the appeals of basic income is the lack of paternalism that comes with it, recognizing that we actually trust people to use money in inappropriate ways. If you follow that chain, we shouldn't have any regulations around it. We should really let people do what they want. And if they end up in a situation where they've fallen victim to some predatory lending practice, that was their decision. But we live in the real world, and I think that's, to your point, where hopefully we can start to see some, some useful data from pilots and experiments that can help us to understand what are the actual risks that exist here. In, in what situations are, are people going to be struggling with this? What is, maybe it's not a question of regulation on the individual, maybe it's a question of regulation on corporations that 
there's certain rules about what is you can and can't do as it relates to future basic income payments. So I, I think it's something where we could theorize a lot right now as to what might or might not make sense, but I, I really feel like having some hard data around this is going to help us to make the, the better, come up with a better answer as to what the right approach actually is. This may be a case where predatory lending should be a target of regulation and legislation, Absolutely. and that's just true independent right. Of, right. of anything basic income. All right, we've got time for one more. This is from Matt, and it's one that, that I hear this one a lot. Money aside, how do we begin to account for the huge portion of our social identity that many people derive from their profession? So to start with, I think it's important to note, as we have in the past, that the implicit assumption here seems to be that basic income is a policy for a world without jobs, right. which is not true. Right. Basic income <laughs> is a policy that is needed today due to the lack of stability that people are facing. We had the recent analysis by the Shift Commission done by Bloomberg and New America, which found that workers, in middle-class workers today, the number one priority they have around work is stable income. And so we're not just talking about a policy for a world where automation has decimated the job market. We are talking about something that really helps and supports people as it exists now. In that context, jobs are jobs. We have people figuring out meeting in their various right, ways yeah. through that. But the question of social identity is, is less of a key point of focus with where things are today as I think where we're imagining things might go in the perhaps not too distant future. Yeah, and if we do take that premise at face value that we imagine a future where there are not enough jobs to go around, then you know that, that's an issue regardless of whether we have a basic income. And I think basic income might be step one to helping to alleviate some of the tension around that and allow people to find an identity and a role for themselves in a society where there, there isn't enough paid private work to go around. Yeah, I mean, this is arguably a bigger and trickier thing than even passage of a full basic income policy that we're saying that as our society is shifting into really a new mode, what does it mean to be a full and productive member of that society. And, and I think that that's something where we, we really need to be doing exploration on, on many different fronts. Um, I think one question is, we often approach this from a very individualistic perspective. And, and I think that may be missing some perspectives around how community plays a role here. That as we discuss social identity, is it something that must inherently come from an individual's pursuits, or could it be something that stems from a group of people? And looking into the past, you can see examples from the church, from other community groups, which have generally played a less role in society today. But should we be considering generally, but also potentially as we talk about basic income policy, how communal organizing might actually fit into that? Yeah, and when you do ask people, you know, what would you do if you had a basic income, a very common response is something along the lines of, I would be more active in my community. And I think that would be wonderful if people had that freedom. And I think that speaks to, you know, both if you combine that with the Shift Commission finding, 
I think people want to have a, a stable lifestyle where they can feed themselves and stay in their homes and all that good stuff. And they want to feel like they're contributing something to society be, beyond their own ability to make make rent. And I, I think that's something where um, basic income can help a lot more than it hurts. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We will do more episodes like this in the future. Yeah. So, so keep them coming. Definitely keep them coming. And just because we didn't get to it this time doesn't mean that we won't in the very near future. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Basic Income Podcast. If you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.